0: this morning we are continuing on our series, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. For those of you who are uh, just back this morning, um, we've been slowly working through the Sermon on the Mount. Some of the hard stuff is already behind us, so you're uh, maybe fortunate for that, um, the really difficult things. But um, I've been thinking some about this last week, um, talking about how we as Christians actually move beyond just believing the right things to actually following Jesus, to following him in a relationship with him. And that's what we're after as we go through this series on the Sermon on the Mount. Not just that we would become more obedient or that we'd become uh, better law keepers, but actually that our hearts would change. That who we are as people would change and become not just something different, but specifically more like Jesus. This morning we're going to get into this first uh, bit here. It's uh, Jesus forbids us, don't resist a jerk. And I'm going to get into some, you may think like, wow, Jason Jerk's a little bit strong. But um, you'll see why I use those words specifically. I say this each week for this whole series. I realize I've been saying it, and now I realize that I'm just going to keep saying it, is that our world needs this teaching right now. Our world needs the words of Jesus. We see people constantly breaking this command. Jesus says, um, don't resist an evil person. He uh, uses evil person, uh, maybe a little bit more kind than me. Um, we need this in our world today. Our world is a hot, violent mess because we, as a culture, people in our culture return evil for evil plus. If someone did something to you, you get them back plus. That's how our culture works. We see it when people are driving down the road. Somebody hits their brakes too hard and then the next person cuts them off and I can't even believe it. There's people who are shooting each other because of the way they drive on the highways. We see it in social media. Maybe not some of you. Some of you might be like, I don't use that face Twitter stuff. But, uh, um, But we hear the stories about it, about the way people treat each other online, social media, people who've never even met start yelling and screaming at each other, saying horrible things to each other. And it just spirals downward into this violent mess. Our world today needs the words of Jesus. And then I think about, too, how we live in this amazing part of the world where, man, we have no army occupying our land. We have amazing freedom here. But we can't take it for granted. And... There are things that we can do, each person in this room, to help cultivate the peace, the shalom of this community by the way that we live. But maybe the question is, how do we do it, right? I mean, we're not all going to go join the RCMP and become um, officers or law enforcement. But how do we do it short of that, right? How do we do it as a church? How do we do it as individuals? What can we do? more importantly, started asking me of how do we grow as disciples? Not only how do we cultivate peace here, but how do we grow as followers of Jesus in the process of it, right? Because we don't want just a more peaceful community. We want to be faithful followers of Jesus that cultivate his kingdom here. How do we get beyond just better law-keeping? How do we move closer to Jesus? I know some of you ask these sort of questions. Or you wonder about these sort of things. Or as we talk about it on Sunday, you're like, yeah, that is a good question. I am wondering about that. Some are wondering, how do we do it? How do I help God's kingdom flourish here in this community? You know, maybe some of you might think, you know, we're so old. Like, we, we are so outnumbered by the people around us. How do we do it? We're such a small community in this place. How do we, how do, we do it? How are we going to change anything? because of the size of our group and the number of people around us and how seemingly resistant people are to faith. Some of you are asking, how do we get closer to Jesus? He's already changed your life, and you're wondering, okay, I feel how he's changed me. How do I follow him better now? Some of you just want to know how to get through. You're feeling overwhelmed or lost, like you're sinking. How do we make it? Some of you might just be here this morning wondering, you know, Jason, I'm interested, how do I not resist a jerk? (laughs) What do I do? Because I've got a few jerks in my life that I'm trying to figure out how to deal with. I have good news for you this morning. There is help in this book. There is good news in this book. This is God's great story. His great story of how he created us endured our sin against him and then did everything to bring us back through his son. And the good news is there's Jesus in this book. So let's dig into it together. If you want to, open up your uh, bulletins or if you want to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. or It's right here too if you want to follow along. We're going to have it up on the screen for you to take a look at. All right. So, Jesus begins with this quote. He says, You have heard that it was said, Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This saying right here, Eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, actually comes from the Old Testament. Three places uh, specifically. One of them is Exodus 21-24, Leviticus 24-20, and Deuteronomy 19:21. As I was studying these, rather than having these three passages up here, um, they're actually addressing different situations. And, but... This is on this saying "eye for eye, tooth for tooth." It actually, is a bit longer in some of the passages. There's like hand for hand, bruise for bruise. But uh, it happens in these three passages. This idea of of the of repaying people or consequences for what how people injured you uh, was a f- was a normal part of the ancient Near Eastern world, uh, a normal part of history of people around the time of Moses. Um, the, in Latin, they have this term for it. It's called lex talionis, which sounds menacing, right? Like talon. But actually, it's law of retaliation is the literal translation. The law of, tra- of, of retaliation. Now, it's interesting because in the ancient world, like, um, did some reading in this in commentaries, and they're doing some further reading in the ancient Near Eastern world, like in uh, Babylonian culture, um, the text of uh, Hammurabi, Egyptian culture, Oftentimes, uh, the, the retaliation was plus. So someone hits you in the face, then you knock them out. Someone kills someone in your family, then you go back and you kill someone in their family, and you injure or maim another person. If someone does something to you, you go back and get them plus. And in the ancient world, it actually got pretty ugly because honor was such an important thing. And if someone dishonored you, by injuring you or someone of your family, to keep your honor or to regain it, you had to go and get them back plus. So in that culture, we begin to see this teaching here where God says, no, 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 not plus, but the same of. If someone hits you and knocks out your eye, then it's an eye for an eye, not a a head or a life for an eye. If someone dishonors you, someone injures someone of your family, then the consequence was that their family would be injured. And it used to be in the ancient world too, if someone injured your daughter, then uh, sometimes the, the, like the father of the, of the family whose daughter had been injured would go back and injure the daughter of the other man's family. And this law is saying, no, no, you don't do that. Actually, it's the person who does the injuring. They're the one who received the consequences. Now, we might think, like, in our day and age, we live 2,000 years after Jesus and the work that he's done in society. And so even this may sound a little bit harsh. You know, Jason, like, eye for an eye. Like, what if you accidentally do it or, you know, you hurt somebody? So I understand from our ears this maybe sounds difficult, but in the ancient world, this was loaded with grace. This was loaded, actually, with justice. So it was equal consequences, so rather than revenge plus, you would give just the same consequences of what you'd received. Not only that, but also it was the assumption that you wouldn't do this on your own. You wouldn't just take revenge, but actually there were judges who would help uh, administer this justice. So you couldn't just get revenge. If someone punched you, you couldn't just go punch them. You go and you talk with a judge and then they would have to receive a strike because of it. It also re- prevented these ideas of blood feuds. Blood feuds were families that would begin fighting with each other and it would turn into all-out war between families until everybody was dead. Just remembering this, I'm going to not quote it totally right, but there's a, a passage from Huck Finn explaining what a feud was. And he said, you know, well, first, you know, one, one person kills another person's family or a person their family and then they kill back. And they go back and forth, brothers killing brothers, fathers killing children. And then he says, and then even aunts and uncles chip in and start helping too, and it starts to work through the whole family. So it was an idea to help these sort of feuds from breaking out in the ancient world. Not only that, but there's equality in what God teaches here. Because like in Babylonian society, if a rich person harmed a poor person, it was excusable because a poor person was expendable. Now, if it went the other way, if a poor person were to harm a rich person, that poor person could be executed because the rich person was viewed as being more important, more valuable. But in God's economy, every person is equal. It didn't matter whether you were socially at the top of the class or the bottom. Their consequences were the same. There was justice. And there's this idea that the punishment was commensurate with the crime. Okay. So... In the ancient world, this is a new teaching about equality and justice to avoid revenge. And actually, in Leviticus 19.18, it forbids personal revenge. In Leviticus 19, it says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So God forbid revenge in a society that was based on revenge. In the rest of the cultures around the people of Israel, Revenge was a part of life and how you did it. So God is concerned about justice and a just response to injury. Law meant bringing justice and guarding against personal revenge and inequality. Okay, so this is the Old Testament um, uh, context of this passage today, okay? So Jesus says, you've heard that it was said eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And then Jesus says this, he says, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Do not resist them. And I was looking at the Greek word of this. Um, talks about resist. It says anti-steme, uh, which means like to stand against, to oppose. Do not oppose an evil person. And sometimes I think this can be misconstrued as no response. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying don't resist them. But listen as we get into this. Jesus calls us to respond, but without violence. With courage, but without violence. This idea that two wrongs don't make it right. It actually just doubles the violence in the world. So don't resist an evil person. Now we have to kind of get at this this idea of evil person here. Now, I just want to say a couple things. Like There's some debate, you know, evil person... Um, throughout the New Testament, it's often the evil person. Most often, that phrase means Satan. It means the devil. Uh, but here in this passage, it is most likely an actual evil person, a jerk. <laughs> Someone who insults you, does things to insult you. Now, you could, I, could, I could definitely be convinced that ultimately Satan is behind all evil, even evil people. So I'm fine if we want to say it's kind of both and here. But specifically, Jesus is talking about a jerk who does something to try and insult you. Okay. The other thing here is that Jesus doesn't deny that they're evil. Jesus flat out calls them an evil person. And I say that because it's important because sometimes, you know, someone will insult us or do something to mistreat us or to abuse us. And and I don't think it's bad, but we will try to explain well, you know, that's they. If I, if we knew their upbringing, or if we, if we had been what they, had, or if we had been through what they had been through, we would understand. Or if we uh, understood their addiction or their mental illness, then we'll be gracious with them. And I think there's good in that. But Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't make it contingent on the other person's disabilities. He makes it contingent on obeying Him. So we don't even have to get into whether the evil person or the jerk, whether they deserve it or not, whether they, whether they have good reason for being so horrible. It doesn't even get into that. It's just because we follow Jesus, we don't resist an evil person. Our, non, our nonviolent response is not based on their good reason for being so horrible. It's based on obeying Jesus. You see what I'm saying? Okay. So, Jesus is about ready to give us some examples of what this looks like. And these are real life examples, especially in Jesus' day. Like a slap on the cheek, suing for clothes, enforced labor. These were abusive things, they were insults. They would attack somebody's honor. In each scenario, the evil one is abusing the person. Now, I want to be careful here because I don't think in any of these situations is Jesus talking about mortal danger especially like the striking someone on the right side or the right cheek, that was an insulting thing. It's not that they were getting mugged or at the danger of losing their life. I think that's a different situation. These were insults. To smack someone with the, on the left side or the right side of the face with your back of your hand was an insult, and that's what Jesus is addressing here. It's interesting. I was reading a, a passage on this, <clears throat> or some do some think about this, and I found this quote from Mark Twain. He said, don't argue with a stupid person because they will drag you down to their level and beat you with experience. I think the same thing can be said about this as well. Don't resist an evil person, because they will drag you down to their level and beat you with experience. So don't resist an evil person. So this idea of do not resist an evil one is the overarching principle that Jesus is saying here, okay? So let's get into each of these uh, specific things. So he says, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now this is the backhanded slap, like this, okay? With your right hand, that was the hand that everybody in the, in the ancient world, your left hand was unclean, which you used to uh, use the washroom, stuff like that. Your right hand is what you ate with. It's the hand that you shook, hand, uh, shook hands with, how you greeted people. Your right hand was clean, but it was also your most powerful. That was the one that you backhanded people. That's an insult. That's not like a punch That's not like beating someone to take their life. It's a backhanded insult, okay? Um, So he's saying, don't engage this person. Don't respond to this insult with an equal insult, which is hard because our reputation is at stake, right? Especially guys, we can relate to this. I remember uh, when I first started following Jesus, this was a hard passage for me. I used to try to find all these different ways, like and listen to these different teachers of ways that, that we're trying to say, it doesn't actually say what it says there, and I think I was just wrong. (laughs) It was just my own pride. Because we're not trying to protect our reputation. We're trying to promote Jesus' reputation. So we're not going to resist the jerk or the evil person. And I don't think Jesus is calling us to cowardice. He's not calling us to cower in fear, but to a rare type of courage that turns the other cheek. Not because you're afraid or because we're weak, but because we're faithful and obedient to Jesus and turns the other cheek. Now, I want to be specific here, or uh, say this explicitly. Jesus is talking about, um, especially guys, because um, in the ancient world, um, men, other than, I mean, I hate to say that, other than husbands, like they wouldn't eat women unless they were their wife or their daughter. So this isn't like just out and out and um um, community or out in a society so this uh, this passage here is not addressing uh, physical abuse in a home okay and I just want to say that so if you have experienced that or if you know someone who 's experienced that, this text is not saying if you 're being abused, keep stay there to keep getting abused that 's not what this passage is about. This is about typically about men who are insulted by other men in the ancient near East okay So if you have, if we're talking, or if you've experienced abuse, or if you know someone who is, this passage is not saying, stay there and keep taking the abuse. Come talk with me. I want to help you. Okay. I also need to say that this is on a personal level. This abuse is happening person to person, typically man to man here. Um, In our society, I think there's things that are equivalent with guys, but also with girls as well. But in this ancient world, Jesus is talking specifically about men who would insult another man by slapping on the back of of their hand. He's not talking about attacks on your family. He's not talking about attacks on weaker people. I think as Christians, we have a responsibility to stand up for people, to stand up for a family, to stand up for people who are weak or who are being abused by others. Also, this passage here is not talking about law enforcement or military. You know, there are people who have taken this passage uh, to to cultivate or to advance a pacifist ethic. And I think as Christians, based on other passages, we should tend towards nonviolence. But I also realize that I, or we as Christians, have that luxury, that ability to be nonviolent because there are people, to use that famous quote, there are rough people or rough men, who are willing to visit violence on those um, who would harm us. But there are people who do the dirty work so that we are able to not. That's a whole other conversation. It's complicated and we'll have to talk about it another time. But if you have questions about pacifism and nonviolence and how does that fit as a follower of Jesus, come talk with me. It's a huge question. But I think Jesus' point here is not that we indulge in another or fall into another type of legalism, but that we have Jesus-like character. You know, I think if we refrain from punching somebody back, Jesus would be, um, I think it's a good start. Somebody smacks us on the face and we don't punch them back, good for you. It's not the point. It's a good start, but it's not the point. Jesus is after bigger game here. He's after our heart and our character. That we become a different sort of person. If someone punches us in the face and it takes every bit of our being to, to keep from punching them back. Okay, good, you've you've passed the, uh, you followed the command. But what Jesus is actually after is the type of men and women who get slapped in the face as a form of insult and do not desire to hit back. In fact, actually, uh, the next part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is love your enemies. That we had moved beyond just holding back every bit of rage that we have, that we become the sort of people who don't desire to hit back, actually the sort of people who love their enemies and do what we can to bless them. We'll talk more about that when we get into the next uh, part of Jesus' sermon. Okay, so this is the the really tough one. The next one is this. And if someone wants to sue you or take your tunic or your shirt, that's your long shirt that you would wear, let them have your cloak as well. Now, this one is a little bit harder for us to understand. I can't imagine anybody in the modern day being sued for a shirt. Um, but this was more of a common practice in the ancient world. Um, it's like to put it like in a translation, like a more contemporary translation, it be like, if someone's trying to sue you for your last stitch of clothes, give them your coat too. See, in the first century, this would result in nakedness. For someone to take your shirt, which is basically what you wore, Sandals, a shirt, and maybe a coat. If someone's suing you for your shirt and you give them your coat too, you've got nothing on, which was extremely, that was um, extremely embarrassing. It would be embarrassing for all of us, but it was completely dishonoring. It was humiliating uh, in the Jewish world. Nakedness was humiliating. But the thing is, common people typically had maybe just a few sets of clothes. And most people were really poor. They had maybe one tunic, maybe one coat. So if someone sues you and takes your one shirt like that is significant. And you give him your coat as well. See, the coat, the overcoat was used especially by poor people like a blanket in, at night to stay warm. They didn't have like, you know, a shirt. They didn't have pajamas they put on and then clothes they wore during the day and then a jacket to wear if it's cold. They had a shirt and a coat. They didn't have beds with sheets and, and blankets and quilts and down comforters and duvet covers. They didn't have that stuff. They had a coat that they wore to sleep to stay warm. And actually there's provision in the Old Testament too not to even take a person's uh, coat. Listen to this. This comes from Exodus 22, verse 26 to 27. If you take a neighbor's cloak as a pledge, so this is someone who is so poor that they are actually giving their their cloak or their jacket um, as, as collateral for a loan. It says, return it to them by sunset. Even if they haven't paid you back. Because his cloak is the only covering he has for his body, what else will he sleep in? When he cries out to me, I will hear, and I am compassionate. Even in the Old Testament, it was forbidden to keep someone's cloak uh, as a pledge overnight because they needed it to keep warm, let alone to sue them for it. Okay. So, suing someone for the cost or suing someone for their shirt, that is a jerk move. That's why I say don't resist. So I translate, it, don't resist a jerk because someone who slaps you, trying to insult you, that's a jerk move. Someone who who sues you for your shirt, it's a jerk move. But Jesus is saying don't resist them. And the surprising thing Jesus says, give them your coat, too. It's, this is one of those places where one of those there's a few of them in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is saying something that is so extreme. And I'm wondering, how do we take it? You know, is Jesus saying this, because it's almost comical. Jesus is saying, if someone tries to take your shirt, strip off your jacket till you're naked and give that to them too. What does he mean by this? You know, is Jesus using hyperbole here? Is he overstating it to make the point? Is he speaking literally? Man, this is one of those places where I'm thinking, Jesus, what do you mean exactly? I think we can safely say he's trying to make a point. Don't resist an evil person. And I guess if we ever find ourselves in a situation where someone is suing us for our shirt, we can give them our jacket too. In terms of literally taking this, what does Jesus mean? I think Jesus' point though, his point is that we don't resist people. We don't resist an evil person or a jerk. And actually, if someone sues us for something, that you bless them in return. Because maybe it gets them thinking. Maybe it doesn't. But Jesus calls us to obedience. Then Jesus says this. He says, if someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. This is probably reference to a Roman practice. You know, it's hard for us to relate, but Israel, um, they are occupied by the Roman army. So imagine if we lived here, And we were occupied by the American Army. And they ran this place. And every time uh, a soldier had to move something, if they didn't feel like carrying it, they could enforce or enlist any one of us, force any one of us to carry it a mile. Regardless of your ability to do it. Maybe you're unable to walk well. Well, too bad. You're carrying it for a mile. And if you don't, probably killed or executed. This is a practice of the Roman army as a way to give their soldiers some rest. Can you imagine how degrading it would be to be forced to help your oppressor, to carry your, the bags of the army that had occupied your land, people that you hated because they um, overtaxed you, because they refused to let you worship God the way you knew you should? It would have been humiliating. But Jesus says, as far as it's up to us, as far as it's up to us, comply with the authorities, even when they're oppressive ones. Maybe by the fact of them saying, carry my bags, and we carry it two miles, maybe it stuns them. Maybe it stuns them, and they begin to think about what they've done. Maybe it will cause them to think. That's the best case. <laughs> and I don't think Jesus, I don't think that's what he was really getting at. Maybe they will and that would be great, but I think we would do this again, not because we hope that somebody would change their mind or be convicted, though that would be wonderful. No, we actually do it because Jesus calls us to. It's obedience to him. Ultimately, these, these real-life instances are not about the person or the jerk changing their ways, it's about us changing who we are, about us following Jesus. Then there's this last one. It says, Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, this is an interesting text for me because the first three are obviously insulting things. They're abusive things. This fourth one is trickier because uh, I can think of friends of mine who've asked to borrow things from me, and they aren't evil (laughs) because... The next week I asked to borrow things from them. So it's it's a bit confusing. I, Jesus, why is this fourth one here? It it is a it seems like a different category. I wonder if he's maybe getting at the sort of person who asks who maybe you don't know, who's not a friend, maybe someone who's begging, maybe someone who feels entitled to what you have, even though they don't have anything themselves. I'm not sure. And some of us might be even asking, like, is this possible? Someone asks you for something and you're supposed to give it. What if they ask you for $10,000? Are you supposed to give it? Jesus says, if they ask you, give it. Now, if someone wants to borrow your, your car, give it to them, regardless of whether you know them or not. I mean, it's, it's difficult. How does Jesus mean this? <laughs> what? No way, Yeah. That's where I was thinking about this myself. You know, if we turn this into a new type of legalism, that's not Jesus' point here. I think it's good for us. um, I think it is good for us to give when people ask. But I was actually, in my study, um, it was Augustine of Hippo, a famous bishop um, in the 4th century, a pastor who said, give to whomever asks, but not whatever they ask. And maybe it's like semantics, maybe it's parsing words, but I think there's some wisdom in that. That someone asks you for $10,000 because they're horrible with money, I think it would be okay if you didn't give them $10,000. It would be okay if you gave them some time and maybe some help, like in terms of encouragement or counsel. You know, rather than me giving you $10,000, I'd rather help you um, with the way you handle money so that you don't need to ask people for $10,000 or $2,000 or $20. Not that we have to give whatever they ask, but we give to whomever they ask. And sometimes it's time or advice or even just care. Now, obviously, it depends on the situation. You know, Carmen, you're laughing about, no way you're going to borrow my car. Well, if someone is drunk and asked to borrow your car, the answer is no. Absolutely the answer is no. Even if it's your best friend, the answer is no. Not only is it bad for them, it's bad for you, bad for your car, could kill somebody. So we have to use our our brains here as well. I think about this too, about giving an addict money, someone who has an issue with addiction, giving them money does not help them. So we keep relying on the Holy Spirit to have wisdom. That we help whomever asks, not necessarily the way they ask. And some people won't like that. There's some people who will be really frustrated and they'll be upset and they won't ask you for any more. And that's just some of the consequences we deal with. But I think this is how we handle what Jesus is teaching here. So these, these examples are helpful for us. They explore, they, dist- they, they demonstrate what Jesus is saying. They all point to this overarching point of don't resist a jerk. Don't resist an evil person. But the thing is, Jesus is not after stricter legalism here. You know, because you could follow this passage. You could say, you know, if someone hits you on the right cheek, turn your left. If they hit that cheek, then you get to pummel them. That's not what Jesus is saying here. His point is that we don't resist people. We don't exchange evil for evil, violence for violence, abuse for abuse. If we follow Jesus' teaching to hear... I think he would be only mildly impressed. If we complied with his commands here, he might say, okay, that's, that's good. You didn't strike him back or you did carry the thing the mile like you were forced to. But I don't think Jesus is just after compliance. He's not after better law keepers. He's after changed people, a change in character. People who go beyond wanting revenge to people who want to love their enemies. That's what he's after. Calls us to endure insult and mistreatment for the sake of the gospel. Not for the sake of our honor, because we won't be honored because of it, not in our society, but for his honor or for the sake of the gospel. Actually, the people would see the way that we respond, maybe not the person who's being abusive to us, but people around us, and they respect us, and then ultimately respect the gospel because of it. <clears throat> the people begin to see that the gospel, the following Jesus, doesn't mean that we get our ticket punched as a way to get to heaven. But actually it changes our lives. I mean, absolutely, we get heaven as part of the deal, a future like an eternity with God, that is good. But that we would have changed lives, that we would be different people, more Christ-like. But even more than that, these commands are training for us. They train us to be peacemakers. These commands that we've been working through today, they train us to be humble. They train us to be gracious with people, things that are not natural in us. Humanity, I mean, just watch the news for a little bit. Humanity, our society, we are not naturally peacemakers. We are not naturally humble. We are not naturally gracious. We have to practice. And so we practice the way that Jesus has given us. The point of these commands is faithfulness. That they would reprogram us, change the way we think, change the way we feel, change who we are, that we care for people. This last week, our small group, we gathered in, and Diane said we should watch this video called The American Gospel. Um, And it convicted me watching this show. Because they're making this point that there are lots of different versions of what the gospel is. But they are saying, all those things are pseudo-gospels, or sub-gospels. They're saying the gospel is Jesus. He is the gospel. I've been thinking about that, how in my effort to encourage us as disciples and keeping the Sermon on the Mount, that maybe I have fallen for this. This little gospel, this sub-gospel of behavior modification. So far, what we've been talking about this morning, you could easily make the mistake of thinking, you know, if I just modify my behavior, if I just don't hit people when they hit me, if I just give when people are asking, if I just carry something two miles when someone asks for one, that's all behavior modification. That's not what Jesus is after. He's after us to become more like him, to follow him. Now, it's not to say that following him and doing what he commands, it will make life better. I believe that. I, I have experienced that. And I, as I look at you and your lives, I know that you have experienced that. Following Jesus, doing what he commands, actually makes life better. It does improve ourselves. <laughs> but that's not the point. As good as that is, it's not the point. Jesus is teaching all of this so that we will be connected to him. Without Jesus, we get stuck in this sub-gospel of self-improvement. This sub-gospel of self-improvement has basically two outcomes. The first one is we're sort of good at it and we become arrogant and legalist. I can do these things. So therefore, everybody else should do them. And if you can't, then get out. Arrogant legalism. The other extreme are people feel completely discouraged and hopeless. I have tried and tried, and I keep failing at these. I guess I don't cut it. And that is not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus, and by his sacrifice, by his resurrection, we have been saved. We receive grace. So this obedience is not the goal. It's the means to the goal. We practice these commands to become more like Jesus. And I say practice on purpose. This is not a gospel of sin management where you just go out there and try to keep your nose clean and hope you don't fail. No, we practice these things. We practice spiritual disciplines, things like reading God's word, praying, serving people, fasting to practice as disciples, to train. I've heard this analogy. You don't just go out and run a marathon. You will die. <laughs> well, not, you might not die. You might wish you'd died. No, you practice. You start running small runs, then long runs, and then you practice for months before you run a marathon. Following Jesus is very similar. We practice following him. His desires that we would move from have to to want to. We would move from I tithe because I'm supposed to. We would move from that to I tithe because I want to. That we would move from I don't hit people back because I have to to I don't hit people back because I don't want to anymore. if we call ourselves Christians and we are not following the Sermon on the Mount, we are missing the point. It's called nominal Christianity. And I'll tell you, that's God means so much more for you than that. But at the same time, if we're doing the Sermon on the Mount, if we're living this and we're not getting closer to Jesus, we're missing the point. God doesn't want just better law keepers. He wants disciples, people with a changed heart, with a changed character, people who want to be with him, whose relationship is growing with him. And if you've been listening to these sermons, these last few on the Sermon on the Mount, and you have not heard that, or if you've heard try harder, please forgive me. As I've been uh, thinking this week, I'm worried that I have given you a gospel of self-improvement, and I'm sorry. God, forgive me, but I also ask that you would forgive me. I, if I've given you that sub-gospel, it's not the truth. We are called in these passages, this Sermon on the Mount, to amazing commands, commands that are above us, that are beyond us. And we can't do them on our own. It is not in us. Maybe some of you have better willpower and you're able to do it for a while longer than the rest, but we all fail at this. That's not to say that we don't take the Sermon on the Mount seriously. I think as we follow these commands, we grow closer to Jesus. The closer we grow to Jesus, the more we want to follow the commands. Do you see the way it works around? The more we follow the commands, the closer we get to him. The closer we get to him, the more we desire to do it. Jesus is the point of the Sermon on the Mount. Not that we become better at behavior modification or sin management, but that we move closer to him. We become more like him. That's the desire of the Sermon on the Mount. That's the point of the Sermon on the Mount. And that's why we follow him. Jesus is the source. He's the one who gives us the power by his Holy Spirit to even do this stuff. Turning the other cheek is not naturally in us. Jesus is the source. Not only that, but he's also the point. Jesus is the goal of following on the Sermon on the Mount. He's the one who helps us begin, and he's the one that we're going for at the end. And the best part is he gives us grace no matter how many times we fall in between, no how many times we mess up, no how many times somebody even says like a mean thing and we punch him in the face. God forgives us. Jesus is the source, he is the goal, and he is the grace. This is the good news for us as Christians. Jesus desires us to be disciples, to follow him and look more like him but because He's the source and because He's the goal. Amen.